Blessed be God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And blessed be his kingdom, now and forever. Amen. We pray together. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's sing together our song of praise.
Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, you declare your almighty power, chiefly in showing mercy and pity. Grant us the fullness of your grace that we, running to obtain your promises, may become partakers of your heavenly treasure. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated for the reading of Holy Scripture. <clears throat> A reading from the book of Isaiah, chapter 57, beginning at the 14th verse. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, speak to us through these words of Jesus Christ. Where we are in need of reforming, we pray that you would reform us. 
We're in need of comfort that you would comfort us. We're in need of instruction that you would teach us. Give us ears to hear what you are speaking to us today. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. America is an angry country. At least that's what the political philosopher Martha Nussbaum says in one of her recent books. But she's not alone. Just type in the words America and anger into Google and see what comes up. It's pages and pages of articles from all kinds of different newspapers and websites, all lamenting the current age of outrage that we live in. Here's a couple of titles from articles, just as an example. America's anger is out of control, we read in Time magazine. And the Wall Street Journal, America is addicted to outrage. Is there a cure? And then there's this one from the BBC, our friendly neighbors across the pond. Why are Americans so angry? One writer from the Atlantic uh, recently observed that we as Americans have always in some ways been characterized by a sense of righteous indignation. We are a country that began with revolution after all, in protest against unjust treatment. Recently, however, he says, the tenor of our anger has shifted. It has become less episodic and more persistent, like a constant drumbeat in our lives. Maybe this isn't accidental. For decades now, leaders in businesses and news media organizations and political strategists have spent enormous amounts of time and money researching how to appeal to our anger to get us to spend our money or give them our attention or vote for their candidate. One political campaign advisor who now teaches at Harvard, he was quite candid about this strategy in a recent interview. He said, if you can map an electorate's fears and, turn, and then turn those into anger by moralizing your opponent's sins, then they'll show up at the polls. The essence of campaigns today is anger and fear. That's how you win. Now, I doubt that anything I'm saying right now surprises you. We're all aware of the anger that surrounds us. We feel it. It's not hard to see. But as Christians, it should be a matter of serious concern. Because the Bible speaks quite plainly about the danger of anger. Do not be quick to anger, says Ecclesiastes. For anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Refrain from anger, we read in Psalm 37, and forsake wrath. Do not fret, for it tends only to evil. On multiple occasions in his letters, the Apostle Paul warns us to flee from anger, rage, bitterness. James, the Apostle, likewise, says that everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And then, of course, there are the words of Jesus himself that we just read a minute ago from the Gospel of Matthew. 
You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So there you go. Anger leads to hell. Can't get much clearer than that. There's no wonder that the Christian tradition has always included anger in its list of seven deadly sins. But it's not enough just to say that anger is a problem. Anger is a deadly sin, that we shouldn't be angry. If we want to take Jesus' teaching here seriously, then we need to ask ourselves, why is it that anger is so dangerous? And what can be done to overcome its destructive influence in our lives? So that's what I want to focus on this morning. Why is anger such a deadly sin? And what can we do about it? Maybe it would be helpful to start off by saying something about what anger actually is. We all know what it feels like, but what is it exactly? One of the best definitions that I have come across defines anger as a desire to rectify perceived injustice. Anger is that emotion we feel when we recognize that there has been wrongdoing committed, either against ourselves or against another person. It's a kind of emotional protest against wrongdoing. And often, it can be what motivates us to actually do something about it. That's why the Catholic philosopher Joseph Pieper describes anger as the power of resistance in the soul. That's why the great theologian Thomas Aquinas actually thought that a complete absence of anger was in and of itself a vice. If you see some terrible atrocity being committed and you feel nothing, then Aquinas says there's something wrong with you. So sometimes anger can be a good thing. It can be what motivates us to resist wrongs and to work to make things right. There are instances in which anger is called for, times when it can bring good results. But that is rare. More often than not, our anger is not a virtue, but a vice. And the question is, why? We can get some insight into this question if we pay attention to what Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 5. And notice how he begins. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Jesus starts off his teaching by connecting anger to the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Or as the King James puts it, thou shalt not kill. Now, this commandment is given for the first time in Exodus chapter 20, but it's not the first time in the Bible that God has forbidden the taking of human life or the first time that we've seen how anger can lead to murder. Just think back to the very beginning of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4, we're told about how these two brothers, Cain and Abel, made sacrifices to God. And Abel's was regarded with favor and Cain's was not. And how does Cain respond Verse 5, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. Now, I hardly need to remind you of where Cain's anger leads, but I'll say this, it certainly does not lead to justice being done. And then later in that same chapter, Genesis 4, we meet another angry man whose name is Lamech, 
And he's bragging to his wives about how he murdered another young man just for striking him. And pretty soon after leaving the garden, it seems that the whole of human civilization has devolved into a kind of wicked and murderous mob. It's no wonder that one of the first commandments that God gives Noah after he gets off the ark is a prohibition that forbids the taking of human life. So when God gives this command to Moses on Mount Sinai, thou shalt not kill, this isn't the first time he has had to address this issue, nor will it be the last. Again and again throughout the Old Testament, we see the terrible tendency of humanity toward violence and the consequences of our refusal to listen to God's law. What's that, what's that quote from Charles Darwin? Nature is red in tooth and claw. And the same, it seems, could be said for the natural condition of the human race after the fall, at least if the Bible is any indicator. And that's why Jesus gives such a strong warning in Matthew here about anger. Not just because if we're not careful, anger might lead to killing, but because most of the time, that's precisely what anger is. Now, it is possible, as I said, for anger to motivate us to make things right, but that is not usually what happens when we let our anger control us, when we tell off that customer service rep and what we think about their service, or when we vent our frustration about a demanding boss. No, more often than not, anger isn't so much a desire to make things right. It's a desire for revenge. It's a desire to see another person get their comeuppance, get the, the pain and the shame and the humiliation that we think they deserve. As the philosopher Joseph Butler once said, more than any other principle or passion, anger has as its goal nothing less than the misery of our fellow creatures. You could dress it up all you want, but at the end of the day, more often than not, anger is little more than good, old-fashioned, spiteful hate. So that's why Jesus thinks anger is such a big deal and why he says it can lead us to hell. The question is, what can we do about it? How can we resist this destructive influence and pull of anger in our lives? Now, psychologists today have come up with a lot of variety of strategies to help us manage our anger. And some of those can be very helpful. But for this morning, I want to focus on two strategies that actually come from this sermon in the Gospel of Matthew. Two practices that Jesus teaches us about that can help us overcome the power of anger. Prayer and peacemaking. The first, prayer. I should be clear that when I'm talking about prayer here, I'm not just talking about praying that God would remove anger from our hearts, although that is a good thing to do. No, I mean to pray in the way that Jesus teaches us in this sermon. And one of the primary elements of the prayer that he teaches us is the confession of our own sin. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. If you want to be a less angry person, and this is exactly where I recommend you begin, by confessing your sins and asking for God's forgiveness. And that might seem like strange, kind of counterintuitive advice, advice to, to refer to anger, but it actually makes a lot of sense. 
Because remember, anger is a response to perceived injustice. But there's this weird thing about anger. Even though it begins with a kind of clarity of our recognition of wrongdoing, one of its natural side effects is to convince us, the angry person, of our own righteousness, of the righteousness of our own cause. That's one of the reasons that it can feel so cathartic. Because the angrier you get at the vices and the wrongdoing of someone else, the more virtuous you feel. And the more certain you feel of your own moral rectitude, the more merciless you are in your denunciation of the failings of others. And King David is a great example of this. There's a story of him in 2 Samuel 12, when the prophet Nathan comes to David and he tells him a story about a rich man who stole a poor man's lamb. And David responds with outrage. He is incensed at that rich man. So much so that David goes far beyond what the law actually recommends as a punishment for theft. And he orders the man to be immediately put to death. I have no doubt that that moment of moral indignation felt good to David. Because in that moment, he was able to forget about his own crimes and put himself in the place of judge. The irony, of course, is that David was, in fact, precisely the man Nathan came to accuse. But in his moment of anger, David was blind to that. He didn't feel guilty. He felt righteous. And that's why it's so important for us as Christians to continue to do what Jesus taught us, to name and confess our sins and to ask for forgiveness is to humble us, to remind us that we aren't somehow blameless or morally superior, but that we instead ourselves are guilty, people who are guilty in need of mercy. It's so that we will be prepared to extend the same mercy to others that has been shown to us. And as we pray, we should not just confess our sins. We also should pray for the people who make us angry. What does Jesus say a couple verses later from our passage? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, there are a few things more difficult to do than to pray for those who have done us wrong or made us angry. At the same time, there are a few practical steps more effective at healing the anger in our souls than praying for our enemies. I'm serious. Try it. Are you frustrated and bitter at a coworker who's making your life miserable? Well, when was the last time you prayed for him? Or maybe it's not a coworker. Maybe it's your next door neighbor, the one who complains every time your dog steps just six inches on her yard. Fine. So pray for her. And if neither of those examples mean anything to you, then what about this? When was the last time that you prayed for the people that you feel most politically opposed to. And I don't just mean praying that God would heap burning coals on their head. I mean praying for their good, praying that God would bless them. Why don't you take the next two weeks and pray by day for the leaders of the opposite political party? What would happen if the church did this together? 
I don't think it would actually change our opinions on key issues, but I think, I have no doubt that it would improve our witness in the world. So that's the first step in guarding against anger, is pray. And the second step, as I said, is peacemaking. It's actually the first thing that Jesus prescribes when he's talking about anger. Look at verse 23 of our reading. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now, this teaching would have probably shocked Jesus' first hearers. And not just because Jesus seems to be equating reconciliation with another person on par or even as more important than an act of worship. It also would have been shocking just because of the sheer impracticality of what he was saying. Remember, Jesus is preaching this sermon in the region of Galilee. But the only place that anyone can offer a gift on an altar is Jerusalem. So if you're going to take Jesus seriously, then that means taking a week-long trip from Galilee to Jerusalem, remembering that you have a problem with your brother, leaving your gift at the altar, traveling a week back to Galilee, reconciling, and then immediately turning around and traveling back another week to finish your offering. That is how serious Jesus takes this practice of reconciliation, of making peace with those who we are angry with and who are angry with us. But it's not just advice for Jesus. That is what he himself did in the face of conflict. And Jesus didn't just make a journey from Galilee to Jerusalem and back again. Jesus made a journey from the heights of heaven to the lowly surroundings of a dirty stable, the backwater Palestinian town. And Jesus didn't just pray for his enemies. He took their place himself on the cross and he forgave them even in the moment that they were mocking him and jeering at him. So you see, Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he himself has not already done. All he's asking us to do is to follow in his footsteps, to walk the path he has already walked, to be people of peace in an angry and a vengeful world. This is like what Paul says in 2 Corinthians when he's summarizing the gospel and says that the good news is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's what the gospel is. And that he has now entrusted us with the ministry of reconciliation. And you know, that's why, that's why every single week in church, we have this thing called the passing of the peace that now feels really awkward because we have masks on. But it's not just a time to chit chat or say hi with each other. We have it after we have been assured of God's forgiveness and before we receive communion because central at the heart of what it means to be Christian is to be at peace with one another because God has given us peace. In closing, I'd like to tell you the story of Celestine Musakura. Musakura is a uh, Baptist pastor from Rwanda. And in 1994, he was actually here in Dallas studying during the genocide when for a hundred days, his country was ripped apart by horrific violence as people rose up and slaughtered over 500,000 members of an opposing tribe. After the violence ended, 
Celestine returned to Rwanda. And what he found when he returned there was pure devastation. And not just in terms of the enormous numbers of the dead and the graves. Not just in terms of the economic crisis that followed. It was the devastation of a country filled with people who had watched as their friends and family members were mutilated and murdered in front of them, often by their own neighbors. And it wasn't just devastation that he found, but he also found a thirst for revenge. The majority, he says, the majority of those who survived were promoting revenge, getting even and continuing the hatred and divisions. Justice was not defined by fair judgment, by, but rather by what people felt would give them a sense of relief, even if it meant vengeance on an innocent person from the other tribe. And Celestine himself had his own reasons for feeling angry and wanting revenge. The Rwandan Patriotic Army had raided his village and killed multiple members of his family and on several occasions had wrongly detained and beaten him. And yet, as a Christian, he was convinced that the proper response was not anger and revenge, but forgiveness and reconciliation. And as he himself later said, this gracious and miraculous act of forgiveness was only possible because of the conviction that Christians should forgive unconditionally as God in Christ forgave them. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So that's what he did. He forgave his family's killers. He even went so far as to meet with three relatives of his family's killers and ask for their forgiveness because of the anger and the hatred that he had harbored against them in his own heart. And then he and his, he and his wife returned to Rwanda and they started an organization and that now has spread to eight African countries and has worked with thousands of Christians to help train them in the hard work of reconciliation and peacemaking. Celestine Musakura is a living example for us of what it looks like to live as Christians in an angry world. Let us follow his example. Let us imitate him as he has imitated Christ. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Please stand. Let us confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth of all that is visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. 
He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Please kneel. In peace, we pray to you, Lord God. For all people in their daily life and work, for our families, friends, and neighbors, and for those who are alone, for this community, the nation, and the world, for all who work for justice, freedom, and peace, for the just and proper use of your creation, for the victims of hunger, fear, injustice, and oppression, for all who are in danger, sorrow, or any kind of trouble, for those who minister to the sick, to the friendless, and the needy, for the peace and unity of the Church of God, for all who proclaim the gospel and all who seek the truth, for Foley, our Archbishop, Todd, our bishop, Paul, our rector and dean, and all our clergy and lay leaders, for all who serve God in his church. Hear us, Lord, for your mercy is great. Let us humbly confess our sins to Almighty God. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who in his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all those who sincerely repent and with true faith turn unto him, have mercy upon you, pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you in all goodness and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please stand. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Please share Christ's peace with one another, physically with your own family, and socially distanced with everyone else.
You may be seated for a few brief announcements. Good morning. Welcome to Christ Church. Thank you so much for joining us today as we, the body of Christ, gather to hear God's word and to meet him in the sacraments and to be reminded of the truth of God in Christ that he has given us. If you're visiting us this morning, we'd love to connect with you, even with our masks on. You can visit us at the welcome desk after the service so we can uh, get to know you better and welcome you well. In the back of your bulletin, you'll see a few different announcements. Our summer book study is continuing via podcast. You can still join us. Uh, we're reading through C.S. Lewis's God in the Dock right now. A few more weeks left of that. You'll also see that our Kids in Need backpack drive is ongoing. For the next two weeks, we're collecting 500 backpacks for uh, at-risk kids in Cullen County as they return to school only a few weeks away. Um, even though many of those kids will be doing school online, they still need supplies, and it's especially acute now because many of those families are in economic need during this difficult time. So uh, you can uh, give online or learn more about how to give by visiting our website on the announcement in the bulletin. Every week we celebrate birthdays and wedding anniversaries. If you're celebrating one of those days today, in the coming week, or if we missed you at some point in the past few months, we want to pray God's blessing on you. Let's start with birthdays. Uh, you can stand up in your seat where you are if you have a birthday today, in the coming week, or if we missed you. Let's pray our prayer for birthdays on page 7. Watch over your children, O Lord, as their days increase. Bless and guide them wherever they may be. Strengthen them where they stand. Comfort them when discouraged or sorrowful. Raise them up if they fall. And in their hearts, may your peace, which passes understanding, abide all the days of their lives. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Happy birthday. Couples, if you're celebrating a wedding anniversary today or in the coming week, or if we missed you, please stand in your seat where you are. I'll pray God's blessing on you. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, bless, preserve, and keep you. The Lord mercifully pour upon you all spiritual benediction and grace that you may faithfully live together in this life and the age to come have life everlasting. Amen. You may kiss your bride. Congratulations. Thank you again for um, wearing a mask during worship. Uh, covering both your nose and your mouth. I know it's kind of awkward during this time, but we really believe it's the best way to keep worship as safe as possible for you and also for your vulnerable neighbor. We're doing communion a little differently than we normally do. Let me explain. During the communion prayer, you'll notice that the clergy and other lay servers will disappear behind the screen. We are washing our hands, we're getting gloves on, we're putting on a mask so we can protect you. Uh, we'll be receiving communion at one of these four standing stations. The ushers will release you to come forward. If you've brought an offering with you, you can place it in this basket up front. Please uh, put your hands out in front of you like this so we can place the bread in your hands. If you'd like to receive the wine, we will hand it to you in an individual plastic cup from the top. Please receive it from the bottom, consume it right there, and place it in the empty tray. If you're not comfortable receiving the wine, that's fine. You can come forward and just receive the bread. If you're not comfortable receiving either, please still come forward anyway. We would love to pray God's blessing on you as we commune together through the sacrament and also spiritually. So as we come to the table and receive again the grace of God and his presence 
in Holy Communion. Let us stand together and let us prepare our hearts with this hymn. Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right, our duty, and our joy, always and everywhere, to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who on the first day of the week overcame death and the grave, and by his glorious resurrection, open to us the way of everlasting life. Therefore, we praise you, joining our voices with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, who forever sing this hymn to proclaim the glory of your name.
as we continue in prayer. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had sinned against you and become subject to evil and death, you in your mercy sent your only Son, Jesus Christ, into the world for our salvation. By the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, he became flesh and dwelt among us. In obedience to your will, he stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself once for all, that by his suffering and death we might be saved. By his resurrection, he broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. As our great high priest, he ascended to your right hand in glory, that we might come with confidence before the throne of grace. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption, O Father, in this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and we offer you these gifts. Sanctify them by your word and Holy Spirit to be for your people, the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Sanctify us also that we may worthily receive this holy sacrament and be made one body with him, that he may dwell in us and we in him. In the fullness of time, Put all things in subjection under your Christ, and bring us with all your saints into the joy of your heavenly kingdom, where we shall see our Lord face to face. All this we ask through your Son, Jesus Christ, by him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. All honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. And now, as our Savior Christ has taught us, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Alleluia! Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed once for all upon the cross. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Alleluia! The gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving.
Come, beloved, all is ready.
Let us pray together our post-communion prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for feeding us with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and for assuring us in these holy mysteries that we are living members of the body of your Son and heirs of your eternal kingdom. And now, Father, send us out to do the work you have given us to do, to love and serve you as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord. To him, to you, and to the Holy Spirit, be honor and glory, now and forever. Amen. The peace of God which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God, and of his Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Let us go out together and sing our closing hymn. Let us go forth into the world, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God.